Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark, uh, chapter, we'll start at the end of chapter 8, and we'll go through 9 and 10, and we'll kind of do an overview of why I think uh, Mark wrote these passages for us. Huh? King James. I'm reading for the ESV, so if you have a King James Bible, go ahead and read your King James Bible. Uh, But we'll start at uh, Mark 8. Uh, verses 31, and we'll read portions of Mark chapter 9 and 10. Um, The focus today would be pitfalls to following Christ. Pitfalls to following Christ. So let's pray real quick, and then we'll get in the Word. Uh, Father, we just pray that you speak to us, like as we just sang, that uh, your Word become real in our hearts and become transformative in our lives, that we may live out what we believe in the world that so desperately needs to see the love of Christ, needs to hear the truths of Christ, and needs believers to share the gospel of Christ. We pray that you help us um, manage our lives, pattern our lives after Jesus, and uh, prevent us from falling into these pitfalls that we'll see. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So the, the title of today's message is Pitfalls to Following Christ. And if you don't know anything about the book of Mark, you can divide the book of Mark in two sections. Uh, Mark 1 through 8 focuses on Jesus' identity. Uh, and towards the end of chapter 8, uh, through the rest of Mark, it focuses on what Jesus came to do, his purpose on this earth. So in, in Mark 1 through 8, we discover who Jesus is, his identity, And we reach this peak in Mark 8, verse 29, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And immediately after this confession, Jesus begins to explain the purpose and the reason he has come, which is in Mark 8, 31 through 32. And this is what it says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Did you catch that last sentence? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now we're talking about Jesus. Peter began to rebuke Jesus. We will get back to that in a second. What does Jesus say after this? After he tells them that he be, he's going to die and suffer and rise again on the three, day, three days, what does Jesus say after that? Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus. And Mark eight thirty four through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him 
the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Immediately after this event, where, G- where Peter claims or confesses Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus tells him what his purpose is here on earth, and then Peter rebukes him, Jesus calls the crowds and the disciples, and he tells them, if, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You must deny your own ambitions and exchange them for Jesus's. Deny your own mission and exchange it for Jesus's. Our lives are to be patterned after Jesus. Deny ourselves. Die to ourselves. Since the cross is an instrument of death. And follow Jesus. This is the calling of a disciple. The calling of a follower of Jesus is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And what we begin to see in Mark 9 through 10 are the pitfalls that we face in this world, which sometimes we use as replacement saviors for Jesus, which can keep you from following Jesus. And these pitfalls can also tempt us as believers and hinder our walk with Christ. So what is a pitfall? You know, a pitfall is an unsuspected difficulty or danger. A pitfall is an unsuspected difficulty or danger. And a good example of this is when we had the ice storm earlier this year. Uh, I was driving down the freeway, uh, down I-630 bridge, and my car starts to swerve. Now, everything on the freeway looked, looked nice. It looked good. Nothing was on the roadways. But to my surprise, there was black ice on the roadways. The bridge looked perfectly normal, but the black ice on it caused my car to swerve. It was something at the moment I didn't expect, but it was dangerous. That's like a pitfall. Something you don't suspect or expect, but it is dangerous. And we all face these pitfalls at different times in our life. And sometimes many different times in our lives. And we have seen the first pitfall in the life of Peter. After Jesus tells him that he must suffer and die, but he'll rise again on the third day, when Peter hears this, he rebukes Jesus, who he just confessed was the Christ, the Messiah, the one they had been waiting for. Peter rebukes him. The first pitfall, pitfall number one, my plan is better than your plan. My way is better than your way. We already read Jesus was telling the disciples what will soon happen. And Peter interrupts him, says, excuse me, you got this all wrong. This is not how this is fixing to go down. And Peter begins to rebuke Jesus because at the moment in Peter's mind, his plan is better. His way is the right way. Now, how many times in your life Have you convinced yourself that your way is better than God's way? When God has clearly revealed through scripture the way you should live and the way you should go, the way you are to follow Jesus, the way you are to deny yourself and carry your cross, and yet we tell Jesus, wait a minute, 
I have a better plan. I have a better way. Peter wants a Jesus that fits his agenda. A Jesus that will conquer Rome, free Israel, rule the world. Peter wants a Jesus who takes the crown without the cross. And if we are honest with ourselves, there are times in our life we want the same thing. A Jesus that fits our agenda. Why? Maybe because it's easier. Maybe because my plan gives me something that I want. That I know I will ha- I will that I know that I'll have to give up if I follow Jesus. Maybe I'm just selfish. There can be many reasons why my plan seems better, but it is a pitfall. And un- it's an unsuspecting difficulty or danger that we will fall into sometimes. And what does Jesus tell Peter in Mark 8:33? But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There is only one way out of this pitfall, and it's submission to Jesus and his plan. Look at what Jesus tells him. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. To get out of the pitfall, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, And follow. Submit to Jesus and his plan. Pitfall number one is my way is better way. My plan is a better plan. Pitfall number two. We're jumping into Mark 9 now. Getting to God in my own way. Getting to God in my own way. The second pitfall is similar to the first which still involves your own way, but it is an attempt to get to God in your own way. Let's read Mark 9, 2 through 8. It's the transfiguration story of Jesus. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to, to them Elijah... And Moses, and, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, They no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. What we have here is Jesus in all his glory on this mountain, which the disciples are witnesses of, Peter, James, and John. And they are terrified. They're afraid for their lives because of what they are witnessing and what they are seeing, what they're experiencing. And what does Peter recommend here to Jesus? Rabbi. It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What does this mean? What is Peter talking about? What is Peter suggesting here? Now, if you read that word tent in the Greek word, it's the word they use for tabernacle in the Old Testament. It was the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was the center of worship of Israel. 
before the temple was in place. This is where all the sacrifices were made, where God would dwell with the people. When Peter seen the glory of God, he heard the Father's voice, seen Moses and seen Elijah. Peter says, let us build a tabernacle. And in essence, what Peter is saying is that we need a tabernacle. We need to set up religious rituals to protect us from the glory of God. The second pitfall we see is trying to get to God in our own way. You have to love Peter. Peter is taking the lead, trying to do the right thing, even though he doesn't know what the right thing is. He is like many people in our world, though, who are confused and not sure what to do or how to get to God. So they will try Islam. They'll try Hinduism. They'll try black Hebrew Israelites. They'll try Mormonism. They'll try Jehovah's Witnesses or something else altogether just to try to get to God. And look at verse 8. It says, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Jesus only. When Peter looks up, he sees Jesus. He only sees Jesus. Because Jesus is the only doorway to the Father. Jesus is the only doorway to the Father. The law and the prophets without Jesus is just another religious system. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and he's the fulfillment of the prophets. And that's why we see Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus is the only way to the Father, and he's the only way to God. All other religious systems, even though someone may have the best intentions when they follow them, all other religious systems will lead us to a place without God. And they'll lead us to hell. Which is why we need churches who are gospel-centered and gospel-focused in communities like Pine Bluff. Because there are people across the street, the people in this neighborhood, who need to hear the gospel. And they need to look up and see Jesus only. Because there's many people out there trying to get to God in their own way. And we all know that Jesus is the only way. Pitfall number two was trying to get to God in your own way. Pitfall number three is dealing with evil and suffering in our world in our own strength. Dealing with evil and suffering in our world in our own strength. Let's look at Mark nine fourteen through 19. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him, and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with him? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
We come on to another scene as Jesus and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are coming down the mountain, and it is chaotic. There, there is arguing, there is a crowd watching, there is demon pos- watching this demon-possessed boy in convulsions, and all this is going on when Jesus shows up. And in essence, Jesus asks, what are you arguing about with them? The disciples who stayed behind. And what we discover is there is a demon-possessed boy the disciples could not help. They tried to cast a demon out of this boy and they could not help him. Jesus looking at all that is going on and, and says, faithless generation. Faithless generation. You can almost hear the loneliness in Jesus' voice. How long will I be with you? Jesus has a dialogue with the father after this about his son. And the father says, if you can help us, have compassion on us. That's the father's plea. If you can help us, have compassion on us. The father is asking for help, but his hope, what he is banking on, is Jesus' compassion. Jesus' response, he says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Listen to the Father's cry. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. And what we discover in this passage, it is the object of the person you place your faith in is what is important. The man placed whatever faith he had in the compassion of Jesus to heal his boy. Even though there was unbelief in him still, he asked Jesus to help his unbelief. Because the bridge between sinful, broken down humanity and the all-sufficient God is faith. And too often, like the disciples in this case, we try and deal with the evil and suffering in this world in our own strength, with our own wisdom, or in our own power, we leave a trail of brokenness behind instead of a trail of hope. Jesus is saying, when dealing with evil and suffering in this world, do not place your faith in yourselves as the solution. Have faith in God. Put your faith in Jesus and point people to him as the solution. And how do we know that the disciples were trusting in their own strength? Read Mark 9, 28 through 29. It says, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. These disciples weren't even praying. See, you see, faith turns to God in prayer. And what is a sign that you are trusting in your own strength in this world? Is when you do not pray. Prayerlessness is a sign in trusting your own strength. When you do not pray, you are trusting in yourself. As a follower of Christ, we must be constantly aware of our inadequacies and be dependent on Jesus, turning to him in faith and prayer, especially when we deal with evil and suffering in our world. We must stop depending on ourselves and become dependent on God. 
Pitfall number four. I want to be the goat. Pitfall number four. I want to be the goat. It is the pitfall of comparison. Uh, we're jumping down to Mark nine thirty three and 37. And there's also another passage in Mark 10, 35 through 45, uh, where it kind of deals with the same thing. Com- comparison. And you want to be the goat. You know, we all know, if you don't know what the goat means, is greatest of all time. Uh, Mark nine thirty three through 37 says this. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him on in the midst of him, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, if you jump to Mark 10, 35 through 45, we kind of get the same story in a different way. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to become indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever should be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The NBA season just closed. And whenever the NBA season is going on, the discussion comes up. Who is the GOAT? Now, we all know that MJ is the GOAT, but ESPN has to talk about something. So they have these conversations and debates about who is the GOAT. Well, the disciples are walking to the next town, and Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? And no one wants to say anything, but eventually someone says, we're talking about who is the GOAT. And this passage fixed perfectly with the one we just read, Mark 10, 35 through 45, because James and John come up to Jesus and they don't ask who's the goat, but their request makes it sound like they think they're the goat <laughs> because they want to sit at the right hand and left hand of Jesus. And too often we are the same way. We want to be the goat, the greatest of all time. I want to be in charge. I want to take the lead. 
I want to be in the front. I want to be noticed. I want to be the goat. And what does Jesus say? You want to be the goat? If anyone will be first, he must be last. Servant of all. Whoever will be great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave for all. Jesus said, you want to be the goat? Then be a servant. You want to be the goat? Then serve your church. Serve your community. Serve your city. Jesus is not just requiring service, but he wants you to serve like him. By giving your life to serving others. That's what he means when he says, you will not be able to drink the cup that I drink of and the baptism that I baptized with. He's talking about the suffering. When people hear that, they think, well, maybe I don't want to be the goat anymore. Jesus says, you want to be the goat? Then give your life in service like I did. Pitfall number five, unnecessary criticism. Unnecessary criticism. Look to Mark 9, 38 through 41. Jesus said to him, teacher. John said to him, excuse me, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And and we live in a society where everybody's critical of somebody. You know, you jump on Facebook, you jump on Twitter, you jump, you, you find criticism all over the place. And right here you see the disciples saying, hey, we seen somebody over there casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he's not a part of us. And what does Jesus tell him? Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Jesus says, do not stop him. Let his ministry keep going. Because he's following me. And unfortunately, too many times, we are critical of ourselves. You, you see on Facebook, you see on Twitter, social media, reading books of believers criticizing believers. And Jesus says... Stop that. That's unnecessary. Now, I understand there's false teachers out there that we need to warn people about. That's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's talking about person doing the ministry of Christ. And Jesus says, shut down the unnecessary criticism and let him do his work. And you go do your work. So you guys working for Christ separately but will reap a reward in heaven equally unfortunately we don't heed this too often 
in our day. We need to listen to Jesus and avoid unnecessary criticism of those doing the Lord's work. That's pitfall number five. Pitfall number six, becoming a stumbling block and not taking sin seriously. Look at Mark 9, 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness... How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Pitfall number six is becoming a stumbling block and not taking sin seriously. Notice Jesus starts off in Mark 9.42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. That means that you can sin in such a way that you will be a stumbling block to someone else and what does jesus say it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea that's a tough warning right there to be a stumbling block to somebody else jesus is saying it's better for him for a rock to be hung around his neck and thrown into the sea and then he talks about personally That, man, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And Jesus is using hyperbole here, saying, if you do not take sin this seriously, you need to start to. He's not actually literally asking you to cut off your hand and pluck out your eye and cut off your feet. But he's trying to let you know that this is how serious sin is. And this is how serious you need to take sin in your life. If you don't deal with the sin in your life, Jesus says, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Jesus says, deal with the sin in your life. Don't be a stumbling block to others and take your sin seriously. Turn to Jesus. And ask him for help. We see a similar similar passage in Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked him. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. 
you know, we have two little children now in our home. And it reminds me, like when you tell them, don't do that. You know, their eyes pop open like they stare at you like I did something wrong. And they know they did something wrong because you turn around and look at them. You tell them, don't do that. They're like, their eyes pop open and they run the opposite direction. And that's kind of what, you know, Jesus tells them, don't do that. Don't stop the children from coming to me. And the disciples pop, their eyes pop open. And Jesus takes them in their arms and he blesses them. And he lays his hands on them. We must not be a stumbling block for others to come to Christ. We must take sin in our lives seriously. Pitfall number seven. When we read Mark 10, 1 through 12, we see the disciple or the Pharisees come to test Jesus about marriage. It says in, in verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, ask, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What does Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In verse 10, And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Pitfall number seven is our society, our culture, has an unbiblical view of marriage and relationships. And just like their culture did, that there was a time in the Jewish society that they were able to write certificates of divorce because they got tired of their wives. So they had, they had a divorce culture just like we do. And they tried to test Jesus, like, hey, why did Moses, why was this allowed? And they didn't expect Jesus' answer. Jesus told them, because of your hardness of hearts, he wrote this commandment for you. He says, but, and then Jesus says, but from the beginning, God made them male and female. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two should become one flesh. And what God put together, let no man separate. Jesus dealt with the culture and the view of marriage in his society. And it was a pitfall for the Jewish people because they were divorcing left and right. And notice in verse 10, it says, And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And if you read the same story, the same story is covered in Matthew. And if you read the same story that Jesus tells, and, and that Matthew tells, it says that the disciples could not believe it. And one of them says, then who can be married? If you're supposed to be with your wife forever, then who could be married? One of the disciples says. And Jesus said to him, Jesus was very plain. And look, 
the unbiblical views of marriage and relationships, they harm our society. They harm our churches. And, and Jesus uplifts marriage again and says, this is what marriage should be. A man and a wife coming together, loving each other for eternity, forever. Until death do them part. What God has joined together, let no man separate. It's a beautiful picture. And, and then if you take it to Ephesians 5, it's a picture of Christ and the church. And it tells a man to go and, and, and love your wife like Christ loves the church. And, and, and to sacrifice yourself for her. And it, and it tells uh, the wife to submit and respect your husband. And, and in, in this atmosphere of mutual submission, you, you get an atmosphere of love. And that's what, what Christ is talking about here. A, a biblical view of marriage. And unfortunately, we've been marred by sin and, and we have these unbiblical views of marriage and relationships. And, and God says, jump back into the word and let the word dis- define what marriage is. Pitfall number eight, the pitfall of pursuing wealth and possessions. Jump down to Mark ten seventeen, and we get the story of the rich young ru- ruler, right? Yeah. Uh, as Jesus was setting out on his journey to go down to uh, another, another city, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, this is in verse 17, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Mark sets this story up really well. Because Jesus is about to leave, and all of a sudden a man runs up to him and kneels before him. And now if this is all we need, we read, we would probably think that this man may ask for Jesus to do something for him. Healing, a miracle, cast out a demon. But that's not what happens. Now we know from the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, that this man was young and he was a ruler, which is why the story is referred to as a rich young ruler. And this rich, rich young ruler does, doesn't ask Jesus to do something for him. He asks Jesus a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's a great question. Every person who has ever shared the gospel with someone would love for people to run up to him and ask him this very question. <laughs> And Jesus' response to him is very interesting. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. When Jesus tells this man this, he is really really challenging him because Jesus knows that this rich young ruler views Jesus as just another rabbi. And Jesus' first concern with this rich young ruler is the same question he asked his disciples at the end of Mark 8. Who do you say that I am? Jesus is the first issue that he addresses is what do you believe about me? What do you believe about Jesus? That is the ultimate question still today. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
What you believe about the person of Jesus is still the ultimate question. Because if you get that wrong, you get everything else wrong. Now, if you notice, he doesn't give this rich young ruler time to answer. He quickly moves on to asking them where he stands on the commandments. And the man says, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, I believe this man may have externally kept these commandments. He, he was probably a good guy. But have, have you ever heard of the good person test? You guys probably have heard of the good person test. Jesus could have given this rich young ruler the good person test. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stole anything? Have you ever looked lustfully on a woman? Have you ever been angry at someone in your heart? But he doesn't do that. Jesus has already said, if you've done it in your heart, you're sinning. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Maybe because this man is being genuine. Maybe he is truly seeking an answer. And, and I love this passage because it says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him, Amen. and said to him, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And it's so, so sad and depressing to read that last sentence. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Here we see the pitfall that is keeping this man from eternal life. His wealth and possessions. His wealth was his savior, his idol, his God. And Jesus said, let's set aside the commandments 5 through 10 for a second and jump to the first commandment. And in essence, Jesus exposed what the rich young ruler loved more than God, which was his wealth. Is our pursuit of wealth either to get it or keep it, keeping us from eternal life? Is it distracting you from having a vibrant relationship with Jesus? Maybe it's not wealth for you. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you are in a relationship that is unbiblical. And God is saying you need to give him or her up and follow me. Maybe you're a workaholic and God is saying slow down and follow me. Maybe you crave power and to be the goat. And Jesus is saying slow down. Lay down your lust for power and follow me. Jesus exposed this rich young ruler's idolatry, and we are told the man went away disheartened, which is better translated grieved. He was hurting, suffering, because he knew it was the truth, and he was not willing to give up his false savior for the true savior. What are you trusting in for your happiness? What are you trusting in for your joy? What are you looking to that you think will give you life? If I only had, and those things that are entering your head now may be what you are putting before Jesus. And what we have next in this passage is Jesus' commentary on this conversation. There, there, there is this new phenomenon in our culture. Uh, if you have kids, you've seen them do it, where people go to YouTube or whatever video streaming service you use, and they, they do not go there to watch the video, they go there to watch someone providing commentary about the video. So they'll watch someone playing a game and giving you commentary about playing the video game. And even though they have the video game at home and could play it themselves, they're watching this guy 
play the video game and give commentary on playing the video game. It's very interesting to me. Uh, at the same time, just crazy to me that people will do that. But that's what they do. But as I read this passage, it reminded me of this because Jesus kind of provides commentary to his disciples about the situation that just happened with the rich young ruler. It's like Jesus pushed rewind and hit re and hit play so he can provide commentary about this event. And in Matthew 10, 23 through 26, we read Jesus' commentary about this event. It says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have, been, have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It, it, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And this was shocking to the Jews in the time of Jesus because many believed that if you obeyed God, he would bless you. And if you were poor and suffering, it was because you were disobedient to God. And it's kind of interesting because we have people in our day with the same view that if you're obedient to God, he will bless you. And if you're disobedient, he will punish you. And this is what the prosperity preachers and teachers will tell you. You are doing something wrong. You do not have enough faith. That's why you are poor and suffering. And what Jesus says is eye-opening and is known as one of the hard sayings of Jesus. It is easier to go through the camel, go for, a, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Many people have tried to make sense of this verse, and there are plenty of explanations out there about what this verse can mean. As for me, I am a literalist, and I think we should take what Jesus says literally. Which means that Jesus is saying that it is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a, sew of a sewing needle. Therefore, it is impossible for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. Which is clear. That is what the disciples were thinking because Peter says, If a wealthy person cannot be saved, then who can be saved? And you see the disciples slowly but surely are starting to understand where Jesus is taking them. And where is that? to the understanding that without the intervention of God himself in our lives, no one would be saved. Jesus doesn't leave the conversation there. He says this in Mark 10, 27. Jesus looked at, at, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The only way for anyone to enter into the kingdom of God and be saved is only by the work of God bringing to life a dead heart and removing the blinders from blinded eyes and letting them see the glory of Jesus. And with man it is impossible, but not with God. And I love Peter especially because I am an introvert and because Peter is saying what I am thinking most of the time. Peter is like, look at, G look. Look at us, Jesus. We have left everything to follow you. Look at us. Man, we are so good. Look at Mark 10, 28 through 31. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time 
houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says following Jesus may cost you your house. It may cost you your brothers. It may cost you your sisters. It may cost you your mother. It may cost you your father. It may cost you your children. It may cost you your lands. But Jesus also says, if you do it for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you will receive now a hundredfold. Now in this time, that's interesting. Now, a prosperity preacher might say that God is going to fill up your wallet. But is that what is Jesus is saying here? I don't think so. And I like the way John Piper says, talks about this passage. It says, surely what Christ means is that he himself makes up for every loss. If you, gives up, if you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern, you get back 100 times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. Amen. If you give up the warm camaraderie of a brother, you get back 100 times the warmth and camaraderie of Christ. If you give up the sense of at-homeness you had in your house, you get back with 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. It isn't what Jesus is saying, I promise to work for you and be for you so much that you will not be able to speak of having sacrificed anything. Jesus is going to work for you so much that you will not be able to speak of having sacrificed anything. Jesus is also very clear in this passage to Peter and everyone else. Jesus explains the cost of following him. If you follow me and proclaim the gospel, you should expect persecutions. You should expect to suffer for following Jesus. And maybe that is our problem in our churches in America today. We are too comfortable with our wealth. We don't know what it means to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel. We think someone making fun of us or making a post about us on Facebook or Twitter is persecution and suffering while there are people laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel across this country, across this world. Jesus says you will be persecuted and suffer for following me. And I want you to understand the cost. Now Jesus could have left the conversation there and he didn't. He explains to us the cost of following Jesus in this age. But he also gives us something to look forward to in the age to come. The reward and blessing of following Jesus comes in the age to come where life is forever and we are in eternal joy with Jesus for forever. And you see, that is the ultimate love. Did you notice it says that Jesus looking at the rich young, young ruler, he loved him? I found that interesting. He says that here. And I like what Tim Keller says about this passage. Passage. Jesus isn't asking you or Jesus isn't asking you or me to do what he hasn't done. In the case of the rich young ruler, Jesus, he became a man. In the case of the rich young ruler, Jesus isn't even asking him to do what Jesus has not done. Jesus left the riches of heaven. He became a man, the limitless God in a limited body. Jesus became poor and he did this for the rich young ruler. And he did it for me, and he did it for you. Jesus is the true rich young ruler. 
And if you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus here today, Jesus set up a pattern for us to follow and a vision to follow in regards to wealth. Wealth is not evil. It's just a tool for us to use for gospel expansion. Jesus became poor so that we may have eternal life. And Jesus provides us with wealth to supply our needs, but Jesus also supplies us with wealth because he expects us to be wise in how we use it as we live in this world. The pattern of Jesus is not how much can I keep and acquire for myself. The pattern is how much can I give away for gospel expansion in this world. What we are doing with our resources that God has provided. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about three resources that God has provided. Time, talent, and treasures. How are you using your time and talent and treasures to expand the gospel in, in this church and on this earth? And for those who are not following Jesus, those who are trusting in other things to bring them fulfillment and happiness, those are, are, who are in the pitfalls, Jesus says, I am the true rich young ruler who left the throne in heaven, the riches of heaven, the glories of home, and became poor for you suffered and died for you, rose again on the third day for you. Leave your false saviors who would not provide you with true fulfillment and happiness and follow me. Only Jesus can satisfy and provide true fulfillment and joy. These pitfalls that we face can keep people from seeing Jesus for who he really is. They can keep people from repenting and believing and turning to Jesus. These pitfalls can also keep believers from having a fruitful and vibrant relationship with Jesus. They are pitfalls for the unbeliever and pitfalls for the believer. And we must turn to Jesus. He is the true Savior. He can remove us from the pitfalls. Only He can satisfy and provide true fulfillment and true joy. Let us turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for all your blessings. We thank you for your love and for your grace. We thank you for your word who provides us warnings for us to heed that we don't fall into these pitfalls and become stuck and stagnant in our Christian faith, that we don't become blind to who Jesus really is. Lord, take this word and implant it in our hearts and our minds that we may serve you and follow you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.